Welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Today's episode is going to be a Q&A, and Ashley's going to fire the most amazing, thoughtful document in the world at me, and I'm going to do my best to feel from Ash. No pressure. <laughs> I'm doing great. Now I'm, I'm going to solve I'm, everyone's problems. Yeah, I'm scrambling to come up with something really <laughs> genius to ask you. Um, I just don't want to put the pressure on you at all. Yeah, yeah. No there at all. Right. Of course. Here's one question for you. Can you guess? This is already going bad. <laughs> Can you guess what I did last night? Because I did do something really fun and food related. I'll say that you probably did, haven't. Because you, you involve testicles? No, <laughs> it didn't. <laughs> it didn't. But I will say, going back to our last conversation, trying to stay off phones like first thing in the morning and last thing at night, which I'm really taking to heart. I'm not going to say I've 100% implemented it yet, but I'm thinking about it. <laughs> I'm getting there. So you probably haven't seen my stories yet, but. Last night, I attended a sausage making class. I learned how to make sausage from scratch. Don't laugh. You're a grown man. I thought thought you were going to say a sausage fest. I was like, it was a sausage fest also because I was like the only woman there. But it was really interesting because as you and I, I think are both kind of similar in this respect that we're obviously very concerned about the kinds of foods that we eat and we want to eat really high quality food. But I'm also kind of on this path to like learning more about like truly where the food comes from, how it's made, how it gets to our plate, like that kind of thing really fascinates me. And there's a butcher shop locally to me here in Ottawa that does these classes where you literally make your own from scratch, which is cool because one, you learn how much work goes into it, which is a lot. And there's actually a lot more technique and skill than you'd think. But also, like you get to see exactly what ingredients go in there and you get to pick which one. So I could like pick the spices and the herbs and stuff like that. And I was the only one who specially requested you guessed it, to add some organ meat to mine. So mine had heart and liver as well as like pork. It was a pork sausage, so you wouldn't have liked that, but it was pork hock. And then I added some liver and heart into it. But it was a really fun, interesting, labor-intensive process. And I have a lot more respect for, you know, these like gourmet sausages you pay like five bucks for and you're like, what? why is that worth it? Now I know why that's worth it. So That's awesome. And I love the fact that you have that intention of understanding where the food comes from and and ultimately the quality of it. Because, you know, I'd love for you to come with me in June if we go out to Belcampo yes. in Southern California. So I believe we're planning on doing a meat camp. We're going to go and spend a couple of days with Anya Fernald, who's the CEO. Mm-hmm. We'll also bring maybe some fans out with us. and That would be see, super see, fun. Yeah, see the farm, see how they process. And apparently it's just this beautifully kept place where the animals live well in a very natural, organic environment, but it's still well kept. It's not like what most people think of like this dingy, dirty farm is they just actually have a good amount of attention to detail and keeping it well kept. You know, Ash, side note, do you know what my first job in the world was? What? I was a butcher. Are you serious? I was. So I used to make sausages. That's badass. Yeah, I was 15 years old. I mean, 14 actually. And I would take the bus every, I think it was four days a week after school. And I would go, I was a butcher. So I learned how to cut and make sausages. And I hated making sausages. Yeah. Yeah, I would have to make skewers and stuff. I was cutting up steaks and I was making sausages and I was doing... Kind of all the busy work, and uh, it was fun. Like I got to certainly learn how to use a knife, and I got to learn how to cut a steak, and I got to learn the difference between certain types of meat. And you know, I didn't get to butcher the whole animal, but I got to the whole animal and watch it being butchered. And it was fun. It was interesting. I did that for a couple of years. But was this around the time because you were like vegetarian for a while? Did this make you vegetarian for a while, or was this? You know, it's a funny ask that question. There's actually <laughs> someone at that business who said, "Hey, man, you know, you should be a vegetarian." I said, "Why?" Well, because this is what meat does to you. And I was like, oh, okay. Meat's not healthy. Meat. Someone told me that at that place. 
years ago. Oh, okay. So it was right after that that I started my vegetarianism. That's so interesting. Okay. Well, I had I, the worst vegetarianism in the world, right? Did I ever tell you what my vegetarian diet consisted of? Yeah, it was garbage food, right? It was stupid. It was, well, honestly, how most vegetarians probably eat, at least the ones that I'm familiar with. It's like, you know, you wake up in the morning and have a bagel with yeah. some like cashew cream cheese. And then for lunch, I'm going to have an apple and a muffin. For dinner, I had like some fucking breakfast cereal or something like that. It was just ridiculousness. And it was just not well thought out at all. But at least I knew I wasn't eating meat. You know, funny story. My uncle, who I don't know very well, is my dad's brother. And I've probably met him five times in my life. But he became a vegetarian because he heard it was healthy. So for breakfast, he would have frozen hash browns, like from a bag. And for lunch, he would have French fries. And for dinner, I forget the for dinner, but like this was his vegetarian diet to be healthy. I was like, dude, don't you see the paradox there? But irony of what you're doing people just don't like as long as i'm needing meat i'm good she's silliness right it's crazy i mean so kind of interesting because this is all sort of tying together but last night and i will get to follower questions i promise but this is an interesting topic because on my drive home from my class last night i took an uber home and the gentleman who was driving me, and you might be surprised to hear that I'm not much of a talker in Ubers, like I'd rather just kind of stay quiet. But if they're talking to me, I'll talk to them. And he was talking about the coronavirus and all the fear that's going on. And he said, it's interesting that every bad virus or pandemic that we've had has been the result of eating animals. Like, I think that's a really strong statement that maybe we shouldn't be doing that. And I'm like sitting there with a pile of liver sausages in my lap. And I'm like, you do not know who just got into your car, dude. Like, so we ended up actually having like a quite, I'm not going to say heated, but it was an enthusiastic conversation on my drive home because he felt very strongly that eating animals was ruining the planet and ruining our health. And I obviously feel very strongly the opposite way. And we disagreed on a lot of things. But the moral of this story for me was that it was almost really refreshing to have a conversation with someone whom I completely disagreed with that was super respectful respectful and you could look the person in the eye. I mean, he was driving, but we were having this conversation and it was so much better than what I feel like is becoming this tired, circular rhetoric that's happening on social media where everyone's just kind of preaching to their own choir and yelling at people and making people feel bad. And it was just really cool. Like I was having this conversation that there was like some strongly worded stuff in there. Like anyway, he was talking about how we shouldn't feed kids meat because if you feed young kids animal flesh, he kept using that term, that that's all they're going to want. And I'm like, I actually think that if you refuse to feed growing children animal protein, that could be in many cases neglectful and really unsafe. But anyway, so we were having like a deep conversation at the end of it. We're like, look, we both feel strongly that the food system is kind of messed up as it stands and that there's things that we should be doing to improve our health and improve the earth. We just feel differently about the way to get there. So we had this respectful conversation where we both agreed to disagree and kind of moved on. And it was just kind of nice for me to have that conversation in real time with someone for once instead of just watching it unfold on the internet. Yeah, I can just picture you sitting in the backseat. We didn't even tell him about the sausages, but I was just like, I've been waiting my whole life for a stranger. When he brought it up, I think he was expecting like the classic person who's not in this world would just be like, yeah, you're right. You know, like feedlot factory (laughs) farming is bad. Like we should all just be trying to eat less meat. And I'm like, actually, I have an opinion about that. And I think he was just like, whoa, this chick like came ready. He's way Um, smarter than me. (laughs) (laughs) I think maybe he learned something. I don't know. What I learned was that you can fully have a conversation with someone you completely disagree with and not get your heart rate up. And this is something you've been teaching me too. Like, what's the point of getting pissed off and angry because someone doesn't see things the same way you do? Like, is that helping anything? You know? So it was just, it was cool. Like, it was a conversation with someone I disagreed with. And I actually kind of felt 
okay with it afterwards, you know? Anyway, it was nice. I had a great conversation with one of my clients yesterday. So about exactly that is life is this dynamic struggle for power. And, you know, everyone's always trying to assert their dominance over the next person, it seems. And at some point, you just accept the fact that you can have a difference of opinions and it doesn't make you right and them wrong or you wrong and them right. It's just like, hey, this is how I feel about it. And I don't need to be emotionally attached to it. And great, like, perfect. And if you feel the egocentric urge to puff up your feathers, it's just a reflection of your ego. And you don't need to prove anything to anyone if they don't want to believe you. It's, it's not your objective to change their mind. It shouldn't be necessarily the objective to change their mind. You just realize, that, hey, this person has a difference of opinion. And maybe you try to see it from their perspective and say why that may be a useful way to approach life for them, you know? Yeah. And it's just kind of letting go of your necessity to always be right. There's a great book by David Hawkins called Letting Go. David Hawkins is also the author of Power Versus Force, which is one of the greatest books I've ever read in my life. I recommend it highly. Don't listen to the audiobook. It's terrible, but definitely read the book. So David Hawkins was a physicist and he's passed away now, but he's one of the guys who quantified applied kinesiology, mm-hmm. thousands of studies kind of verifying its legitimacy and that power versus forces just talks about that a little bit and talks about levels of consciousness. So, you know, I often try to define, I guess, uh, levels of consciousness. Like, where are you in this realm of consciousness? Like, how do I ascend this ladder of trying to get towards some level of high consciousness? And he defines each level in terms of an emotional state. Mm-hmm. It's super interesting. And he's like, you, know, you can kind of go up, you know, ascend to consciousness and you can descend consciousness. And people are often trying to pull you down this ladder of consciousness and they're trying mm-hmm. to bring you into their level because they're trying to assert their dominance over you. Very, very good book. I need to revisit it. I've read it two or three times in my life. I need to revisit it again. So mm-hmm. it's probably been five to seven years, but it's one of those like everyone should read type books. Yeah. Got to add that one to my list. I've got a lot of books that you tell me about that I have to add to my list. Did you tell me to read? Because I read a love and relationships book recently, Ben, just so you know, because you know how much I tell you to do it. Yeah, because you know how much I don't like it, right? But I don't know if this is one you recommended to me or not. It's the Attached book. Did you read this? The Attachment Styles book. It's called Attached. I believe it's called Attached. And it's basically anybody who's like, even somewhat into the kind of like love relationship self-help book thing will probably know about the like the gist of this book and like the different attachment styles and essentially there's three there's like you're completely secure and perfect which i don't know anybody who's like that and then there's the anxious attachment the people who kind of like chase and cling and then there's the avoidant attachment the people who like push away and how all of these people can come together and interact and certain things work better than others and i call a little bit of bullshit on this book i actually posted in my stories and i had a lot of people come back to me and say like this book really helped me and it changed my life. And like, that's great. Like, I'm not saying that the book is across the board wrong, but one thing that I noticed, and again, this comes from maybe having two psychologist parents. So I have like more exposure to the whole therapizing stuff that maybe other people wouldn't growing up, but I found the book really biased, which I think when you're dealing with like psychology, you probably don't want to feel a strong bias coming from a book that's talking about different personalities or attachment types. And I found there to be some bias in the book that made me immediately sort of turned off. So I'm like, this is what I get, okay, for trying to like learn about love and relationships. Thanks, Ben. But this book, I guess you didn't suggest to me, so I won't blame you for it. It's really funny. I didn't recommend that one. But so I'm part of this mastermind group where we've got some amazing, amazing, it's a great mastermind group. And it's become more than just a mastermind. It's like guys who are actually lifting each other up. And it's an awesome, awesome group. And that book was posted multiple times. And obviously, I'm striving to always understand relationships and be better at them and be better at communicating with relationships, whether personal or professional. And that book comes up a lot and I have not read it. I think it's probably in my Amazon card, but I appreciate that perspective. And like me, like I hate bias or like you, I guess I hate biased books. Like an example being the same client I spoke to yesterday said he went to a psychologist, he had a terrible experience because 
she was basically just trying to impart her beliefs and bias on him. And I was like, right. what the hell's the point of that? And what if I don't have the same beliefs and bias you do? Like, what if I believe that you're absolutely wrong? Right. It just makes no sense. Give me action items. Give me a thought process. Give me a theory maybe, but don't tell me exactly. Now I would life. actually be very interested for you to, and I'm not saying like, don't pay attention to it, but like you could almost skim through the main portions of this book. And I feel like get the point. Maybe I won't go in any deeper into like what I think the bias was or how biased I thought it was. Cause I'd really be interested actually in you going through it and telling me the vibe that you get. And it's interesting because the people who responded to me that said, I really found this valuable tended to be people who self-reported that they were the attachment type that this book seemed to promote sort of. So anyway, I don't want to get too far into it where I'm just kind of talking in circles, but I'd be interested in your thoughts if you took a look at the books and maybe we can like reconvene on that at some point. Yeah. I don't see it happening <laughs> in the next three or four months because my schedule is pretty ridiculous. But if we can remember yeah. it and bump it back up. And it yeah, for sure. Okay. It. All right. So here's a bit of a softball question. If you don't like it, that's what you get for letting me just ask you questions without you reviewing them first. So you're just going to have to, <laughs> you're just going to have to deal with this. Gosh. But what? That's why you're here. Yeah, exactly. Okay, good. But sometimes I listen because you're honest. You'll be like, I hate talking about that. So, But you're, you're really good at vetting these questions. So that's, uh, yeah. We'll see. Well, yeah, we'll use your judgment on this. <laughs> yeah. This, I'm, this I'm, is, I'm gauging your judgment, by the way. <laughs> Okay. This actually isn't that bad. It's just, I'm curious. I think a couple other people are too. But when this podcast drops, you, Ben Bukalski, will have had a birthday. So this is after the fact. So you don't have to worry about people like wishing you happy birthday too much. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) Are you going to be mad if like me and or anyone else is like, everybody wish Ben a happy birthday on your birthday? Are you going to hate that? Of course not. Okay. All right. Good. Um, But anyway, what are you thinking? Are you thinking about it at all? Or do you do any of this like, okay, a year has come to a close. Let's reflect. Like, what do I want to do with this next year? Like you're coming up on sort of a landmark age soon. Like you're going to be what, 57? Anyway, (laughs) what do you think about having another birthday? Do you think about it at all? So I just want to point out that if you're in the same room with me right now, I would definitely be punching you. You look really good for 57. I think it's the shaved head. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. So I'm going to be away. I'm going to be away from everything. I'm going to be with my children. We're going to be in the mountains and I'm going to have a lot of time to reflect. I think it's a perfect time. So a good friend of mine is actually going to be coaching me for the next few months. He's coming with us to the mountains. So it's going to be fun to spend a little time doing exactly there, doing exactly that. I'm a grower. I'm someone who's always aspiring to be my best. And, you know, this word self-mastery is something that comes often and I like when people challenge me and I like when people question my bullshit, my beliefs. So that's not something I'm going to be doing a lot over the next seven days while I'm kind of disconnected is spending a few hours every morning journaling, spending a few hours every morning talking to this person. And to him and I may even record a podcast. I know he listens to these. So I'm going to throw that out there. So you can't tell us who this person is yet? Is that a secret? No, no, no. Yeah, well, I don't know a secret, but yeah, okay. maybe at okay. some point. And so the point being, thank you for that awareness. And yes, I will be doing some reflection. Do I have anything specific planned? You know what? Every day of my life is this ascension of becoming the best version of me. And it's. I had a conversation with one of my friends this morning about when you're this particular type of personality, you don't need people around you to remind you all the time. It's sometimes nice. But the reason I was a successful bodybuilder was because I was my own worst critic. And the same thing continues to exist in my life is... Everything I do, I question. Every word that I say, every interaction I have, and I don't necessarily do it in the moment, but I'll leave and I'll reflect. I'll say, well, what could I have done better there? And how did that go? And even after I send a text message, I'll be like, okay, was that worded correctly? And was that maybe misconstrued or taken the right way? Or did I do the best job articulating myself you know, for the objective I was trying to achieve? And you know, after every podcast, I usually go, was that good? Or was that bad? At least I try to. I try to make time for those things. And 
that's kind of a constant ongoing daily thing for me is the reflection and the journaling and always assessing. Um, but likelihood of me doing a greater amount of that during this week away is significant. You know, I do it just before New Year. Um, and this is a really good time, as you say, with this milestone. So yes, I will. I guess for somebody like you who has already managed to implement sort of almost daily or at least very consistent reflection, it's perhaps slightly less important. Like some people kind of put almost too much weight on, okay, it's January 1st, let's reassess and plan my life. Or it's my birthday and I'm 30 or I'm 40. So now I have to plan. Yeah, you know, waste of time. yeah I mean, that works for it's some people, but I think that maybe because as humans, we tend to do this all or nothing thing. Like I'm going to quit sugar oh, forever no. or I'm going to plan my yeah. life for 10 years. Whereas maybe if you just start thinking about sort of these daily check-in moments, then maybe mm-hmm. you have less pressure on yourself to do these huge reflective periods when the time comes. Right. And I think we talked about that last podcast, Ash, was I think it's this backwards mistaken paradigm where people say, hey, I'm going to do a body transformation or hey, I'm going to do a goal setting. I'm going to set a goal. I think it's a really nonsensical paradigm. Like I think the objective of the transformation is not to transform. It's to become the type of person who will do the daily things to transform. So how do we then, instead of saying, hey, I want to do a three-month transformation, say, hey, I'm going to implement one habit that brings me closer to being the person I want to be. And that's goal setting to me, right? It's not objective oriented, it's process oriented. And again, the process gets you to the objective. And that's really where people make a mistake, I think. And even fitness, I've had this paradigm of like, oh, you know, I want to do that. I want to, for my whole life, I was like, I'm do this contest and then put on this muscle. And those goals are good. But what if I just implemented a daily habit? Like, hey, every day I do cardio or every day I meditate. If I want to become a more calm, more calculated person, or if I want to be more thoughtful in business, or if I want to have a better ability to articulate, it's not going to happen if I set the goal once a year, whenever, and hope I implement it. It's got to be the daily implementation. So rather than setting 10 goals and filling all of them, you set one habit and do it until it's stuck. People overestimate what we can do in a day and underestimate what we can do in Mm -hmm. 10 years. We can shift. And if you look at your life from 10 years back, you'll know how much you've shifted and some of it good and some of it not so good. And you have to be aware of this neuroplasticity thing can go in either direction, right? You can certainly change for the worse and you can change for the better. And objectively, like how do I ensure that I'm always ascending the ladder or ascending the mountain rather than descending the mountain? Um, so what are these habits I need to implement? And conversely, maybe for some of us, it's just going, what habit do I need to remove? Don't change anything, right? Remove this habit. Or sometimes saying, how can I replace this habit? Because it's been suggested that habits are not necessarily created or destroyed, they're replaced. So If I have this one habit that tends to not be productive for me or tends to be destructive for me, I need to replace it. I need to find some way to shift my habit. And that may be simple as, you know, if someone tends to eat at the wrong times or eat the wrong foods, rather than saying, I'm not going to do this, you say, hey, I don't do that anymore. Now, instead, I do this. And there was a guest that was supposed to come on the podcast this week, actually, unfortunately, he had to cancel for some health reasons, but he's probably the best at articulating this stuff and getting into the unconscious and paying attention to you know, how your unconscious effectively runs your life and learning how to actually create a different dialogue with the unconscious. So for the listeners who want to really dive into an amazing, amazing podcast, Jim Fortin, Jim Fortin, F-O-R-T-I-N, I highly suggest. If you're someone who wants to change something in your unconscious, if you want to learn how to understand how your unconscious works, he does certainly one of the best jobs I've experienced. There's a few other guys. Obviously, Tony Robbins is a ninja when it comes to that stuff, um, getting into people's unconscious and changing it. There's another guy, actually, you may remember his name. He's a guy, oh, Mike Mandel. He's a hypnotist out of Canada. Another guy who's a wizard. I've listened to some of his podcasts last couple of days and just a wizard when it comes to shifting the unconscious. So 
you know, if I want to change something in my life, trying to do it consciously is futile because it's this dynamic interplay and this dynamic interaction and almost fight between your prefrontal cortex, which is conscious, and your limbic system or your uh, amygdala, which is unconscious. And unconscious will always win. You can't consciously override the unconscious. Well, you can, but only temporarily. So then you have to create unconscious habits, right? So the habit starts consciously and we move it toward being unconsciously and we have to do it every single day. Otherwise it won't change. Mm -hmm. And the suggestion for some people is like 66 days or some people say it's longer, but you got to do it every day for for a good amount of time. I'm kind of jealous of your amazing week in the mountains, which is I think a really timely and smart thing to do these days when everyone's talking about hoarding toilet paper and social distancing, but you're going to get all that beautiful fresh air and spend time with your kids. Are you guys going to go skiing? Are you just going to be like out in the fresh air, chilling, writing and reading books? What's the plan? There won't be any skiing. I don't think it's going to be quite that cold. So we're going to go in the south of the Blue Ridge Mountains in in Georgia. Oh, I thought you were staying like up north. Okay. No. So it'll be cold, but not like freezing cold. It'll probably be, you know, for the the Americans, it'll be in the 60s. And for everywhere else in the world, it'll be in the upper Mm -hmm. teens, I think. So I think that's not certainly frigid and certainly not hot. So it'll be actually great. Kind of the best temperate cold weather to go hike a mountain and go. We got a nice river running through our backyard. We got a bonfire. It's going to be really nice. There's five kids going, all in the same age, which is awesome. They can entertain themselves while we adults do adult things. That's cool. Like read books and be nerds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very (laughs) cool. You have posted recently and you've been getting a lot of questions about your aura ring. Can you talk about how you've been using it or what you've been finding? Because people are fascinated, fascinated by sleep tracking. The thing with sleep and with heart rate variability, the big thing that I've learned and everyone doesn't get this until they get it is you can't compare yourself against numbers. You can't compare yourself against a standard of somebody else. So getting into this idea of where do I start and where was my lifestyle today or yesterday and how does that reflect in my HRV and my sleep? So if you're doing certain things and you go, man, my HRV just tanked or, Hey, I went to bed really late and I got no deep sleep and like paying attention to how different lifestyle interventions impact sleep. So deep sleep, for any listeners, we've talked about this a number of times, but deep sleep happens at the beginning of the night. So if I'm going to bed late, chances are I'm going to cut into my deep sleep. I might see a drop off in my performance in my body. And REM sleep happens late in the night. So if I'm getting up really early, I might not get enough REM sleep and then repress my ability to think really well clearly. So that's kind of like me right now, actually, except for a little early this morning. Yeah, so that's one way you look at it is going, well, how are these lifestyle factors like going to bed late, like getting up early, like eating late food, like getting late light exposure, impacting this deep versus REM sleep ratio or the, the total amounts? And then how is it impacting my heart rate variability? So if I'm training late at night, if I'm eating late at night, what's it doing to my HRV? If I'm training a lot and many days in a row, what's it doing to my HRV? And, and the way that I explain HRV in the simplest way is when you're exercising or any type of stress. So exercise is a stress, calorie restriction is a stress. Think of it like digging a hole. The more stress you have, the bigger hole you dig. You don't want to dig a trench. You want to dig a hole, and then you want to replenish the hole. That's this idea of getting out of homeostasis. So we're creating a stress, and then we have an allostatic response bringing us back into this homeostatic space, hopefully with an upgraded adaptation. So we're now better adapted to doing the thing we were doing. So that's ultimately the stress response. So when I dig a hole, whether it be in exercise or in life or in you know, depriving myself of sleep, I have to fill the hole back in. And there's many ways we can fill the hole back in, right? It can be with nutrition, which is having maybe an excess of calories or some additional carbohydrate. It can be with sleep and rest and meditation and nature and grounding and love and, and connection and all these things that are just filling the hole back in. And that's the simplest way to look at HRV. We're intentionally trying to create a hole. 
I really think at some point you want to be able to create the biggest hole you possibly can in periods, provided you can fill it back in really quickly, right? So if you're really good at recovering from exercise or stress, then the intention should be ultimately to create a bigger gap, provided you can get back into that recovered state really, really quickly. So that's one thing we aim for with training or with progression is I want you to eventually be able to dig a bigger hole. And all that means is, you know, I often use the reference of the warrior and the monk. The warrior is the one who just crushes it. You get in there and you get after it in that workout and you create this massive stress in the training. And then after training, you're a monk. And that's when you're going back into this parasympathetic recovery state where you're replenishing that big trench you just dug during your training. But you're so good at accessing the warrior and you're so good at accessing the monk that you can push harder and harder and harder. And that trench that you dug gets replenished really, really fast. So it's this idea of 22 hours of parasympathetic and two hours of sympathetic, which is your time in the gym, sympathetic being your fight or flight, right? Whereas most people live the opposite. Most people are probably sympathetic 18 or 14, 18 hours a day and, you know, parasympathetic, maybe if they're lucky for a few hours while they sleep. And, And even that is a stretch for some people. So really paying attention to using that order ring to objectify how recovered am I? And if I have a high amount of heart rate variability, that means I can access the warrior because he's way up there and the monk who's way down there. And that differential between the warrior and the monk is kind of a good indication of the amount of heart rate variability, right? And if I have a low heart rate variability, it means I'm not accessing the high warrior and I'm not accessing the low monk. I'm accessing this middle ground, kind of mediocre, lukewarm version of myself. And I think that gives maybe people a good visual understanding of what's happening with aura. And that's how you use it. There's another metric in there that I think is absolutely imperative and maybe overlooked. And maybe one of my most important metrics is respiration rate. And getting your respiration rate down, I think Ashley and I talked about this, is like getting your respiration rate down under 10, ideally under eight, is a complete game changer to psychological health, consciousness, to cardiovascular health. Like getting it lower at rest is vital. And ultimately being able to access still a high amount of arousal during exercise. Some people can get their heart rate down, but you can't get it up. So that's maybe a lack of sympathetic arousal, right? Some people are just kind of adapted to it, like the white noise in the background. So we want to access both. All right. You'll probably get some really good sleep in the mountains too, just because like all the fresh air and stuff. Like we've talked about my poor sleep, but I will say the times when I sleep well is when I'm like camping or when I've had like a day of skiing and I'm just like out in the air and the elements and oh well I guess really it's like away from the light too which is probably the biggest thing for me but there's nothing like a good sleep after being outside like in the woods all day you're so right and we have like hikes planned and I think the big thing is there's no light pollution so that to me is like just a beautiful thing I think the kids want to sleep outside in the tent and I'm like that's awesome like if we can make that happen and so they can see the lights of the stars and they can experience what true quiet and peace feels like I think they'll come back completely rejuvenated and ready to to approach their life and you know I set the target now of doing this at least once a quarter with the family so you know we went at Christmas time went to North Carolina and now we're going for my birthday to Georgia and it's also their spring break and then we're going to go in July to Banff or Jasper. So we're going to go out in Canada and spend a month out there in the mountains. And the beauty of it is, you know, I can kind of be wherever I need to be or wherever I want to be. And my family being my greatest priority, I want those kids to just, you know, even if life is stressful, even if not everything goes perfectly every day, to have them understand that when you disconnect, things just feel better. So I want them to understand it now. And so we're empowering them with this internal skill set, right? Rather than an external coping mechanism, like, Hey, you're stressed, you need to eat food, or you need to watch television, or you need to do, you know, whatever, lash out in some way. Hey, look, we have this internal strategy. So it's like, I'm just going to go in and just connect and breathe and be present and be in nature and let them realize that that can recharge their batteries, right? That plugs them back in, that fills their cup. 
and I make them very aware of how much better they feel. If so, like, and usually they are. So at the end of it, like, how do you feel? Oh, I feel so good. I feel so recovered. I feel so happy. And my sleep is great. And then, you know, my appetite is amazing. And, ah, okay. So why was that? And you make them consciously aware of it. And I think that's a powerful, powerful tool for parents and children, ultimately, to make them realize that you don't need anything outside of yourself. Like, we didn't do anything special. We didn't go to Disney. We didn't buy any gifts. We just went and spent some time in nature. Yeah. You feel so much better. You know, you didn't eat any junk food. You didn't have any pills. You just went out and like, connected with Mother Nature, and you've upgraded your life. Awesome. Are you going to eat a cake on your birthday? Um, are you going to make <laughs> me a organ meat cake? <laughs> Oregon meat cake. Yeah. I mean, I know how you feel about Disney. I know how you feel about Christmas. So I'm assuming how you feel about birthdays is not, you know, how people typically feel about birthdays. Oh, no, no. That's a different one, right? That's a different one because that thing actually means something. I mean, all these other holidays are materialistically construed in the wrong way, right? Birthdays. I celebrate birthdays massively with my kids and with myself and like my family for sure. Um, I think it's the most important day. Like it's the day you, you got to come to this amazing life. So I definitely celebrate birthdays. Will I have a cake? My daughter, for whatever reason, is infatuated with making cakes. Every day that I see her, she's like, hey, daddy, can I watch cakes? <laughs> like, that's all she wants to do. She's like, she takes my phone and watches YouTube and she watches people make cakes. She's really awesome. And so we live near a kitchen store. So I buy her like everything she needs to make cakes. And she just loves it, man. And they have cooking lessons now at the store. So I'm like, we're going to get her to do some cooking lessons. It's pretty awesome. But like, she doesn't want to watch cartoons. She doesn't want to watch anything. She just wants to watch cakes and dance. Creative. That's my daughter in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Cakes and dancing. I actually think it's quite empowering because learning how to make things and create things for other people and you're making other people happy and you're nourishing other people and you're learning how to follow steps and rules and experiment with things like all of that I think is excellent for young people to do because I didn't have sort of a strong pass down. Here's how you make food or here's how you cook or here's how you do like I didn't really do that like I remember taking like a home ec class in junior high because that was still a thing I don't know if that's still a thing and basically it was like okay well you didn't burn the kitchen down but you're never going to be a chef and like here I am some years later writing a cookbook and I'm like I'm learning as I go and it actually really is empowering every time you put something together and you create something and it's successful and it's delicious and you're like nourishing the people that you love I mean that's pretty cool so I think actually learning how to cook and bake and stuff as a young person is like a very cool valuable skill I completely agree and both of my kids for whatever reason want to cook and so we used to have a chef that would come to the house and teach them and that was great and kind of got away from that but I'd like to reintroduce it the challenge being obviously the little people and getting you know little people sized things in the kitchen like a countertop is yeah. a challenge so we, you know we're kind of building this countertop that allows them to get up on a stool and kind of work there so it's a challenge but hey if they love it Let's do it. Let's pursue it. And I mean, you've probably already thought about this, but with your cooking series and the project that you're working on, I mean, you got to get the kids involved at some point, right? Like teach them how to do something, have them on the video, like learning how to make stuff, right? Of course. Like ultimately everything I do is for them, right? I want to connect with people. So my skill set is improved so that I can teach them. I think there's such a powerful opportunity that exists in making food and connect with your loved ones, right? It's like my mother was a great cook and so was my grandmother. And you know, they asked this idea of every time I cook them something I'm like, Daddy, why wouldn't you cook it? Does it taste so much better? It's this idea of I cook it with love, right? And like, oh okay, that's you know, like so they start to get it and they start to realize that there can actually be a care that goes into food. And it actually, you know, they're like, hey, why does it taste better when you cook it? I'm like, oh that's why, because I, I actually want you to enjoy this and I want you to love it. So I cook it with love. And if we can kind of transfer that thought of like giving love from the heart into everything you do, whether it starts with cooking, hopefully it transfers into other things as well, right? Any, anytime you write something, are you doing this with like a thoughtful approach and love and 
know, putting your soul into it or are you just doing it? Right? And that's, a, I think, an important message for all children. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's one of the only sort of universal things that can bring everybody across the planet together. There's only a few things that all human beings do, right? And one of them is eat. And I think that's why it's such an enduring thing that we're all watching these reality shows or these TV shows and the chef's table and learning about other cultures because, yeah, that is the one thing that brings people together and shows people that you can get along and you can come together over food. And when you make something for someone, it's a respect thing and it's a love thing. And like, that's very important. I think in the Western culture, we have kind of gotten away from it a little bit. Like we want everything to be super fast and super convenient and super easy. And we don't want to have to take the time to do it. And I get that we're all busy. And, you know, I come from this position of not having kids. So I've got a lot more free time than people who do have kids. But I think that putting more respect on the time and care and attention that that stuff takes, I think is a beneficial thing. Because like you said, it's something you can do with your kids and you can teach your kids through the act of making food. It's not like this thing you just have to get through or you have to throw something together so that you can feed your family. It's like make that part of the things you do together. And that's going to make everybody healthier and closer probably too. And I want to finish this podcast, Ash, with giving everyone something that's really actionable that they can do in the gym. Because I think we like to include things like that, just so it's kind of tying all back into fitness. And a lot of the female listeners and even a lot of the male listeners, uh, you know, so female listeners, if you're trying to build your glutes, male listeners, if you're trying to improve your squat, glutes are a big part of that. The one discovery I've had lately is, and I've never talked about this in the podcast, so this will be useful for people. The fact that I'm saying this, so everyone kind of bring everyone's focus into this, means it's a significant difference maker. So your hip flexors, let's call it your rectus femoris, it crosses the knee joint, crosses the hip joint. It's one of your quad muscles. Don't worry about it. Don't need to remember that. But what I want you guys to do is if anyone's out there trying to build bigger glutes or build bigger lats, because the glutes actually play a significant role in building your lats because it's creating pelvic stability. When you get into the lengthened position at the hip, which is a fully flexed hip position, being extremely hypervigilant with contracting your hip flexors may be the single greatest tip anyone can ever give you for glute training. So if you have a hard time feeling your glutes or building your glutes, typically what happens when you get to that lengthened position, your body will typically lose stability. So most people are very lax or they lose stability in the extremes of the range because the body will downregulate contraction because it senses weakness or instability. So if we can create stability on the front side of the hip by contracting consciously the hip flexor, will lengthen more and therefore have a greater elastic kinetic energy and able to generate force. So example being, if you're at the bottom of a deadlift, if you're at the bottom of a squat, instead of just passively going into that position, I want you to consciously think about contracting your hip flexor. If you don't know what the heck I'm talking about at this moment, if you're sitting or standing, it doesn't matter. I just want you to lift your foot off the ground and your knee starts coming up towards your chest. And those muscles you feel that just contracted that, the ones that kind of tie up into the hip, that it almost feels like a long, thin muscle, that. So when you get to the bottom of the squat, lock in on that. And if you can't feel it, just do a little light activation, pushing up into your hand with your knee, and you'll feel all those muscles that tie into the hip, they cross over the hip joint, contracting a little bit. And if you can consciously contract that as you descend into a squat or a deadlift, especially at the bottom, like I'll literally stop on every single rep, or obviously on the warm-ups especially, every rep and really become hyper-conscious on how hard I'm contracting that, knowing if that muscle is really, really short, where I'm getting it shorter and shorter and shorter, me in that contracted position, that the muscle on the other side, the antagonist muscle is being lengthened. So I know that the shorter I can get my hip flexor, my rec fem in this instance, the longer I can get my glute, therefore the glute will have a greater kinetic energy, a greater elastic energy, greater ability to produce force, and you're creating greater stability at the hip joint. So that's the end of your range of motion. As far as you can go into contracting that hip flexor is the end of your range. So most people think, oh, I got to go all the way to the ground. Nonsense. You go to the end of the range for the muscle. 
not the end of the range for the exercise. So the end of the range for the muscle at the hip, it's the glute. It's going to fully flex hip position, really consciously activate that hip flexor. And when the hip flexor is short, really, really short, stay there, spend a second there, see if you can improve the contraction. And that lengthens the glute and you drive back into the floor using your heels and the glutes contract. You use that contraction to create motion, to propel motion, right? So rather than moving weight, we're challenging muscles. And I think that's an important paradigm for people to start understanding the objective in exercise is not to complete three sets of eight that's stupid the objective is to challenge a muscle first and then eventually ultimately time and load at some point can matter but it only matters a quote that i sometimes throw out there is before you quantify you have to qualify which means quality before quantity quantity at some point has to matter but quality before quantity so let's make that make sure that quality is locked in let's get 100 percent quality contraction and then and only then can we start to scale the ability to work harder does it make the greatest amount of sense so exercise execution exists on a continuum right it's not black and white it's not right and wrong it's moving toward this 100 percent maximum challenge right and that's the way people should think about this is right now you're probably somewhere in the lower end of your ability to execute and every day or every workout should be an ascension toward like perfect execution. How do we define perfect execution? Well, you have to have great mobility, you have to have a great stability, and you have to have great skill. So there's three facets that I teach everybody. It's mobility, stability, skill, right? So we have to be able to access the range of motion, I have to be able to get into it, and then I have to be able to stabilize at the extremes of the range, and then I have to be able to move through the range with the skill to obviously maintain that as I ascend through load. So the challenge, the thing with load is it's important to acknowledge as load increases, the necessity for stability has to be increased, right? So as I put 10 pounds in my hand, that requires a certain amount of stability at the joint. As I go to 20 and 30 pounds, obviously that requires a whole new set of stability. So as I ascend in load and skill, I have to also ascend in my ability to stabilize while maintaining the mobility and without losing that mobility is a very important thing to acknowledge. So that's a big difference maker for everyone. And I think that if you take that tip and you apply it to any body part, it still applies. So if your ability to contract your pack is limited, it's because of your inability to stabilize the antagonist, which is your back. And if your ability to contract your lattice is poor, it's because of your inability to contract your serratus. And all these muscles work antagonistically. So if one won't shorten, the other one won't lengthen, right? So an example being, if I can't fully shorten my bicep, I won't be able to fully lengthen my tricep. And if that's the case, you know, sometimes you get elbow problems, you get shoulder problems. In, in the case of the glute, you'll just get pancake ass and nobody likes that. Nobody likes that. <laughs> Boys and girls. <laughs> that's one thing I got to say I've been impressed with over the last few months going to like... The development of my glute. Thanks. Yeah, that. And just the Globo gyms, like seeing more dudes doing glute workouts, because I'm like, of course it's all women in there doing squats and whatever we're doing to get big butts, but seeing more men in there doing like glute work, because it is important. Like once you get over the superficiality of like, I just want to have a good looking butt, which everyone does. It's obviously an incredibly important area to strengthen that a lot of us don't, right? We have all these imbalances and glutes and posterior chain is a big one. So seeing more dudes in there trying to get butts, it's like equal opportunity. All of us. Yeah. So guys listening who don't train your glutes, it was one of the biggest mistakes I made during my career because of the absolute necessity of the glutes in your ability to stabilize your lat. Mm -hmm. So people don't think could make that connection. But if you have weak and unstable glutes, you will absolutely not have optimized lat. Mm -hmm. So think that through if you want to build your lats. And that actually very conscious of that when I'm training my lats too. 
is how much stability can I create through my glutes? So you guys often see me doing a lot of single leg, single arm stuff. Mm. And when I'm doing a leg or a lat exercise, I'm hyper, hyper aware of really driving my foot through the ground to activate that glute as much as I can. And use that as an indication of like, hey, so get to that lengthen position. How much can you actually engage glute? If you can't, I can tell you with a high degree of certainty, you're not going to develop the glutes. You probably also won't develop the lat. So get in that length of position and be hyper vigilant of how well you contract and scale and grade your ability to contract in that position. So the better you get, the better your glutes will grow and the better your lats will grow. Very cool. Thanks for that. I hope you have fun in the mountains next week and have a good birthday. And I hope everyone wishes you a happy birthday and it's super annoying. (laughs) Thank you very much. I expect video messages, everybody. (laughs) So, you know, the first person that calls me every day on my birthday, every year on my birthday. And she sings to me every year as my grandma. Aw, that's so cute. She's what, 86 this year, maybe? That is really sweet. She calls me every year on my birthday and she, oh, my little Benny. She's my, my little Benny. That grandma, is adorable. Oh, and if anybody wants to send you voicemails or video, you can just message me on Instagram. I will give yeah, you Ben's phone number. I will is. give you Ben's personal <laughs> cell phone number and you can send him whatever messages you want and also ask about reps and sets because I know that's what you really care about. Okay. Ash, you know how I work, right? Like, I don't lose. So if you want to start that competition, I promise you. That's fine, really. I don't know, dude. I don't know, dude. This might be one you could lose because people will be much more interested in spamming your phone than mine. So we'll Ash, see. How many dudes that listen to this podcast that's, would be That's all true. Over I would probably number. get a lot more inappropriate you'd be, pictures. But. You'd be getting, <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. It's like, you'd be getting dick pics left and right. And I'll forward them to you, Ben. So... <laughs> Anyway, this yeah. is going downhill as per. Well, everybody, Ashley's number is. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's for next time. All right. Yeah, exactly. It's always good to have a laugh. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to the QA version. We're super grateful for you guys being here. I always love having these conversations with Ashley. I love answering your questions, and hopefully, we're providing a huge amount of value for you every week. And today's podcast is going to be brought to you guys by Blue Blocks. You know that we're super grateful for Blue Blocks continually supporting us and supporting you with an amazing discount. Blue Blocks are legitimately something I wear on a very regular basis. Usually every day I'll wear my clear when I'm sitting at the computer for long periods of time. Now, as I am uh, writing this course, I'm sitting at the computer usually six hours a day, sometimes more. If I'm outside, I take them off because I want to get that natural sun. If I'm inside experiencing this amazing blue light that we are blessed to have, I like to let my eyes have a little bit of a break. And then at night, if I happen to be in front of a screen, if I happen to be in front of a TV or I'm driving, I'll usually put on something like a If it's super late at night, it'll be my reds. If it's earlier in the day, I'll wear my yellows just because I don't want to. Driving wearing your reds is not a good idea. It really messes with your depth perception. Blue Blocks is amazing. They look awesome, and I'm a huge fan. So thank you very much to Blue Blocks. Ash, where do they go? What do they do? How do they get it? They go to blueblocks.com forward slash muscle intelligence, and that's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. That's also in the show notes if people want to check it out. And the discount code is MUSCLE. You get 15% off, free shipping worldwide. I actually just tried their eye mask for the first time, and it's really cool. And for the few listeners, there's a lot of, I know, lady listeners who get their eyelash extensions, long eyelashes like big long fake eyelashes this is something totally outside of your worldview but yeah lots of long fake eyelashes these eye masks have like cups around the eyes like for dudes have long eyelashes too they get kind of squished or uncomfortable it's like they almost have cups around your eyes to keep the light from coming in and it also saves your eyelashes so check out their sleep mask too yeah i used it during my travels and i think mm-hmm. I, I, don't know, I didn't tell you this i told andy this i left it on my darn flight after korea I like, oh i left it in the back of the seat i had an amazing flight from bali to korea because 
I don't remember taking off. And the thing that woke me up was when I hit the ground. It was an almost a nine hour flight. It was amazing. And I had that sleep mask on the whole time. Yeah, yeah. it was amazing. But I literally took it off and I was like kind of half dazed and half asleep and felt terrible. And I put it in the seat and then everyone's kind of rushing to get off and I left it. And I've done that with so many things in the past. I've got so many funny stories about stuff I left in the plane and try to get it back. You know, they don't let you back on the plane. Yeah. So you're like, okay, well, at that point, I didn't even know until I was on my next flight, but they don't let you back on the plane. One time I left my computer on there when I was going to do a presentation in San Diego. I was going to do a presentation to a business group and I'd never taught business people before. This was like seven, eight years ago, like a business mastermind. And, you know, I think I was talking to 5,000 people and I left my computer on the airplane. So I didn't have a presentation. I was like, what do I do? That's just a good story. I'll finish with this. People are sitting there. This is actually really, really funny. So I get to the hotel and I was like, shit, I forgot my computer on the plane. I can't do a presentation. I got no slideshow. So I literally called the airline and they're like, oh, that plane's about to take off. It's actually going to be leaving in a few minutes. Actually, I think I was calling as I was in the taxi back to the airport. This was, like I say, seven years ago, no, no Uber yet. And I get to the airport and uh, I'm talking to the person at the counter and they're like, okay, I'm going to get on the phone right now. So they're calling the airplane and they're on the phone with first whoever answers the phone on the airplane and they give the phone to the pilot. The pilot goes, give me the phone. I'm going to talk to this person. He goes, yeah, I have your laptop here. Unfortunately, I'm already on the runway. And he goes, but wait a minute. So he stops and he goes away for 30 seconds. He comes back and he goes, okay, we have someone on the runway who's going to stand below the airplane and I'm going to drop it out the window. He's like, what? It's like, I'm going to drop it out the window. I wrapped it in a blanket and I'm going to drop it out the window. He's going to catch it. You okay with that? Yeah, yeah, drop it. Drops it out the window. And I'm standing at the desk. And then like 10 minutes later, we have like eight employees from, I think it was Delta. Shout out to Delta. Eight employees from Delta. I was like running out, like smiling and cheering because they all went through this amazing endeavor to get my laptop off the airplane. And literally the pilot was about to take off on the runway. And a couple of people ran out there, caught the thing, brought it out to me. And it was like this big celebration. They got to do the presentation the next day. So it was a great way for me to break the ice in that presentation. Yeah. I was like, I was so nervous. I was like, all right, guys, you got to know what the hell happened today. <laughs> That's yeah, amazing. No so the airline pilot threw it out the window into the ground below and I got to get my computer back. It's also a nice story about human kindness and like people actually doing something awesome for somebody. Oh man, everyone else would have just been like, screw this guy, he can wait. Like, I didn't even tell him the reason. Maybe I did, but I don't think he knew the pilot, but I might have told the guy on the phone. But so he just was like, hey man, this person really needs their computer. Like I need to get this to him. And I was pretty impressed by that. That's amazing. And we end with funny stories as always. I like it. For Ben and Ashley's comic hour release. (laughs) I hope everybody's had fun. (laughs) Live your greatest life in a body you love. And thank you guys so much for sharing this podcast and giving us reviews. And if you don't like our corny jokes, you can tell us that too in our reviews. Tell Ashley. Have an amazing day, guys. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.